is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we love bringing you stories from all over our great country. We've been spending some time in Austin, Texas, at a place called Community First Village, a 51-acre master-planned community that provides affordable, permanent housing and a loving community for men and women who've spent years, often decades, surviving on the streets of Austin. Some people focus on the fact that this village has beautiful RVs, and gorgeous small homes designed by the finest architects in the nation. But that's not this place's secret sauce. No, it's the people who live and work at Community First that make it transformative. To get a sense of that, we'd like you to hear a story from Larry Crawford, the fellow who fixes anything and everything that breaks in this community, from air conditioners to trucks. Here's Larry. I bought myself a new truck, and I've always been a kind of the base model truck buy-in kind of guy. And But I'm a little older now, and I have a little more money, so my wife went shopping with me, and she's like, oh, I love this leather. So what I ended up purchasing was the Longhorn Laramie diesel, has all these bells and whistles on It's got things on the dashboard I still don't know how to work. Uh, it's four-wheel drive. It's got fancy wheels and running boards, and it's just a really a luxury pickup truck. And because we're in Texas, it's just like a... I don't think it's a written law, but it's kind of like a law that when you get a new truck, you got to go show your buddies. You know, you got to go show the guys you work with your new truck. So I'd had the truck about a week. And uh, so I decided to drive it to work and show it to my buddies. And the end of the day, my wife called me and she, she asked me, she's like, hey, can you go to the grocery store and pick up this one item? And that's several years ago. I don't remember what it was. And so I'm like, yeah, I can do that. So I, I leave work and... I'm heading down Loyola because there's a HEB grocery store at uh, Springdale and 183. So I was heading that way and I saw this homeless guy that I that I had known for several years walking down the street. And so I just stopped in the middle of the road, rolled the window down. I was like, hey, Mike, where are you going? And he's like, I'm going to HEB. And I'm like, jump in. So we go to HEB and, and I'm like, I just need one thing. I said, I'm going to go and get what I need and then I'll just wait for you at the truck and I'll take you because he lives in a camp uh, not too far from here and uh, I'll take you back to your camp and uh, so I, I get my one item and I'm sitting out waiting for him to show up and he comes out of the store with two boxes of beer and and um, he's, a, he's a profound alcoholic and uh, I mean without exaggeration I've seen him falling down drunk at 7 a.m. Uh, He's a lovely human being. He just has lost control of his drinking. Anyhow, so I drop him off at his camp. I go home, fix dinner, and the day just ends. I go to bed. And about three weeks later, we do this thing here at the village. We call it Reach Out. And basically, get a bunch of chartered school buses, and we go get the homeless people from the camps in downtown. We bring them out here to the village. We let them take showers, get haircuts get a real good hot meal, not fast food, but good hot meal. Uh, you know, there's somebody here that's like nurses and doctors and check their blood sugars and their diabetes and their blood pressure and do all of these things. And um, so anyway, I'm standing over by the corner of the shop and and I see Mike get off the bus and he's screaming at me. And, uh, and it's not uncommon for homeless people to scream at me because they all want the same thing from me. Uh, I'm a smoker. They want to, hey, you got a cigar? Do you have a cigarette? Do you have, you know? And so I knew that's what Mike wanted. So I'm just 
sitting there kind of silently and I said, okay, hurry up, Mike, so you can get a smoke from me and I can go on with my business. And he's, as he's approaching me, he's maybe 10 or 12 feet away and I could already smell him because he hadn't had a bath in a long time. And he drops down to his knees in front of me and he takes this old ratty backpack off and he's like, man, I got you something. And I'm like, what do you mean you got me something? He said, man, I bought you a present. I'm like, man, you have to get me nothing. And he's like, no, no. He said, I see how you treat people on the streets. He said, and I wanted to give you a gift. And he said, I noticed in your old truck, the truck I drive to work that's sitting out there by the shop right now every day, it's a, an 05 Dodge Diesel. I have the black velour interior, which in 2005 was pretty nice. And um, anyhow, he said, I noticed in your old truck that you had a Bible that had the same color cover as the interior of your truck. And I'd, at that point, I'd been driving that truck for like 12 years, and I didn't realize that the cover on my Bible and my black upholstery were the same color. It never occurred to me. Anyhow, so he had ridden in my new truck, and he said, I got you a Bible that has the same color leather as the leather on the seats in your new truck. And he said, I went to the Bible store. He said, I didn't even realize there was more than one kind of Bible. He said, I told the lady, just sell me the most popular one that had this color leather. He said, the receipt's in the box. He said, and the lady said, you can bring it back and get whatever kind of Bible you read if this is not what you want. And I can tell you right now, it wouldn't matter which Bible. It could have been any, it could have been a Bible in a foreign language. I wouldn't have traded it back in. And at that moment, man, my eyes started leaking. I wasn't like crying or nothing, but I was just like, I just like couldn't believe that this, guy which is like the poorest of all the poor people that you ever met had bought me a bible to match the interior of my truck and and the thought kept going through my head it's like man I, this guy could take this back get his money back this i'm driving an expensive truck i live in a nice house i could go buy a box of bibles and wouldn't even miss the money but i, and I just get something kept telling me, it's like no you need to take this gift from this man and and i did and I still have that Bible still in my truck. And um, uh, it was a lesson for me in the unbelievable generosity of human beings that man probably panhandled for weeks to be able to get enough money for his daily survival and then be able to accumulate the $77 he paid for that Bible. Um, not realizing that he probably could have just went to the local church and asked for one. They probably would have gave him one for free. He didn't get that. But, but anyhow, so the struggle that man went through to get that, uh, it's one of my most valued possessions. And uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't trade it for anything. Great job on that, Stan. And what a message of generosity that can come from anywhere. And we do these stories about the homeless, about prison inmates, right next to entrepreneur stories, stories about billionaires, because in the end, these are all great American stories and show our heart and our soul. Larry Crawford's Bible Story, here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories. The great Sioux warrior statesman Red Cloud was the only American Indian in history to defeat the United States Army in a war, forcing the government to sue for peace on his terms. Bob Drury and Tom Clavin have finally given the little-known Red Cloud the recognition he deserves with their New York Times bestseller, The Heart of Everything That Is, the untold story of Red Cloud, an American legend. Here's Bob and Tom to share the story with us, beginning with Bob. This book, it's basically an untold story until now about how uh, one man created an empire, if you will, on the high plains. Uh, At one point, Red Cloud's territory included about one-fifth of what is today the contiguous United States. And no one before, we don't think, really knew what was going on in that great swath of territory bounded by the Missouri Rivers, the Mississippi River, and the Rockies. And cartographers, early cartographers, despite Lewis and Clark's exploration, they just labeled it the Great American Desert. And Red Cloud's story, his narrative, his his timeline, fits with so much that uh, we didn't know what was going. There were no newspaper men. There was a few, a few mountain men, a few French Canadian hunters and trappers, but. In, in that great swath of territory, no one knew what was going on in the 1820s, the 1830s, the 1840s, even in, well into the 1850s. And uh, no one knew how Red Cloud had consolidated this empire. Now, of course, when he fought his war and won his war against the United States, the only American Indian to ever win a war, not a battle, a war against the United States, people certainly knew who he was. But we were a little trepidatious when we first started this book. Our previous three collaborations, there had been people to interview. There had been sailors who sailed through Halsey's Typhoon in World War II. There were Marines still alive who kept uh, the road open coming out of the Chosen. 189 Marines held off 10,000 Chinese to allow the 1st Marine Division to get out of the Chosen. And there were certainly Marine security guards alive to interview who had been mistakenly left on the roof of the Saigon Embassy in 1975. Obviously, there was no one left from, from the 19th century. But what we did find is that our forebears were such literate people. We went into this expecting maybe we'd get some after-action reports from the Army. Uh, when the soldiers started moving west, maybe the officers, maybe an officer's wife might have kept a journal. As it turns out, every Teamster's wife kept a diary. And we found all these, and letters, and Tom, He'll explain to you, at some of these uh, university libraries and historical centers, they would bring out a journal in a a plexiglass case, and you had to turn the pages with tongs because your oil from your fingers would destroy the vellum, I guess it was written on. And there were letters from 12-year-old girls who would pass the Oregon train, you know, Paul was killed last year by the Indians. First train in this year said they dug up his grave. We don't, maybe it was wolves, but we think it might have been Indians again, that kind of stuff. So we actually felt like we were interviewing people for this book. As far-fetched as that might sound, we, we got into it so much that we felt like we were living the lives with these people. That said, I'm uh, going to have to give you a little what we call the dreaded backstory, because you really can't understand Red Cloud without understanding the Sioux Nation. So. What we do know, what was to become the pre-Columbian Sioux Nation, it was seven tribes, the, 
the tribes of the seven council fires. They followed the Mississippi Valley north and they settled in Minnesota. Now, in Minnesota, they were the baddest Indians in the Great Lake region. And for centuries, they just made unending war on their predominantly Algonquin neighbors, the Cree, the Chippewa. And they were vicious. They, war was their ethos. Unlike other tribes, they had no non-violent culture. They did not make pots. They did not grow food. They did not even paint anything on their teepees or their shields. War was their reason for being. And the first Europeans, mostly French, who looked at the Sioux, I mean, they were immediately reminded of the, the Norse berserkers or the Huns or the Mongols. The Sioux lived to make war. That was their ethos. And they were good at it. And they were real good at it. And for centuries, for hundreds of years, they just dominated the region. But then what happened was when the English trading ships started to come into Hudson Bay and the Cree and the Chippewa, who lived closer to the bay, began trading pelts for guns and the tables turned. Once the Sioux had been the hunter, now they were the hunted. Once they had extolled violence for violence, they, see, what the Europeans didn't understand watching in particular the Sioux, but the American Indian culture in general, was it wasn't violence for violence sake. Yes, they fought wars to gain territory and to bring home booty, but also the old cliche, the happy hunting ground, the Sioux and most of the Plains tribes for that matter, really believed that there was an afterlife that was a happy hunting ground. And it was filled with clear running streams and game as far as you can see, a buffalo and elk and deer and antelope and beautiful maidens just waiting to be taken. But what happened was there, they believed that you went to this afterlife in the same way you left the earth. So what the Europeans didn't understand about the scalpings and about the mutilations. And if, you, if, you went to the happy, if your enemy went to the happy hunting ground with no eyes to see how beautiful it was, if he went with no arms to draw back a bowstring, if he went with no penis to take advantage of these comely maidens, well then you had, he had suffered two indignities at your hands, one here on earth and one there. And that's what a lot of this was all about. When the Europeans came down, of course, they didn't understand this at all. And they started trading guns with the other Indians. And the other Indians began hunting the Sioux, who were still using prehistoric tools, flintlock knives, flintlock arrowheads. They drove the Sioux into the swamps of Minnesota. And finally, their territory just became so compromised that they had a choice, an existential choice. They either would die or they had to step out onto the prairie. They ended up stepping out onto the prairie. Even on the prairie, they were still, even though they kept up their warlike ethos, but they were still, the tribes we don't think of, the Mandans, the Arikaras, the Rees, the Omahas, the, the Otos, they were kicking the Sioux's butt because these tribes were mounted and the Sioux were not yet mounted. And one Cheyenne, one regal Cheyenne, I described the Sioux as scraggly, lice-ridden band begging for handouts. That's how bad it was. But that all changed again. The worm turned yet again when the English started coming down, first the Minnesota River and then the Missouri River and establishing trade fairs. Now they were on the edge of Sioux, this Northern Sioux territory, and the Sioux were the ones, the first tribes, to get weapons, to get guns, to get shot, to get ammunition, to get iron pots that would, they would break into arrowheads. Sooner or later, the Sioux took their revenge on the smaller tribes that had been uh, almost 
picking them apart, the Mandans, the Otos, the Rees. Uh, and then something happened that changed the course of Western history. It, uh, the Spanish, I, I love this part of the book and I love this story, but I won't go too off course here. But I will say, when the Spanish brought the tough little Mustang into South America and Mexico, it was a match made in heaven. Unlike the big lumbering Northern European war horses or plow horses, these Mustangs had started out on the Central Asian steppes and had followed the trade routes through the Mideast, along uh, Northern Africa, <clears throat> had interbred with desert horses. And w when the Moors invaded Spain, they came over with these tough little, and they were right at home on the Andalusian plain. They could run forever, they could eat weed, they could eat bark, and once again, when the Spanish brought them to the New World, they were right at home in the New World. What happened was, is the Spanish, as they conquered and forcibly converted at the Indians up into what is now the United States. They made deals with them. You worship our God who you don't understand. We're basically going to enslave you. You grow our crops. But in exchange, we have horses and we're gonna, we're gonna protect you from your age-old enemy, the Apache. Well, the Apache began raiding haciendas and rancheros and they got horses. They didn't know how, if a, uh, an Apache would ride a horse till it died, then he would eat it. So he, they didn't know how to breed it, but this gave them room to uh, to further out their raids, and they started raiding the Pueblo. And the Pueblo said, hey, wait a minute, you enslaved us? You're making us worship some Christian God we know nothing about, and your end of the deal is to protect us from the Apache, you can't even do that now. So in 1680, the Pueblo rose, and they drove the Spanish back into old Mexico. And the Spanish ran so fast, they left everything behind. And so the Pueblo, they ate the cattle, they ate the sheep, but they weren't a horse tribe and they just let the horses go, and this was the beginning of the great horse expansion on the United, in the Northern Hemisphere of this, the United States. And you're listening to Bob Drury, and you'll be hearing the story, the continuing story of Red Cloud, the New York Times bestseller, The Heart of Everything That Is, the untold story of Red Cloud, an American legend. Let's continue with Bob. And so the horse gradually made its way along, once again, ancient trade routes north. The Comanche were the first true, true horsemen on the plains. They, had, they were a scraggly tribe too. They had come out of the, the Wind River Range in Wyoming, but they learned how to breed horses. They made rudimentary saddles. They were uh, Sam Gwynn's Empire of the Summer Moon, which is a tremendous book. Tom and I argue with Sam about who were better horsemen, the Comanche or the Sioux. I think if you go by territory alone, you have to have, I think you have to go with the Sioux. At least that's what we tell Sam. But the horses made their way north, the Kiowa and Kansas, what is today Kansas got them, the Pawnee in Nebraska, all the way up to the Cree in uh, Canada, and of course the Cheyenne, the Sioux, the Crow, they all acquired horses. The Sioux just took to the horse naturally. And much like the early Apache raids, now they could spread out more. They conquered what remnants of the smaller tribes, the Otos, the Rees, the, the Mandans, and then they took on the big boys and they, and they pushed the Pawnee out. They pushed the Kiowa out of the Black Hills. They pushed the Crow out of the Powder River country and up into the Rockies. They controlled basically parts of Montana, from Minnesota to Montana to the Great Salt Lake and down to lower Colorado even. It was just, it was an empire. But the Sioux were still seven nations, seven tribes. Uh, uh, Sitting Bull, I'm sure you've all heard of, he was a hunk papa. 
uh, crazy horse was an Oglala. Red Cloud himself had an Oglala mother and a Brule father. So these seven tribes were further scattered into the fractious bands and clans. They all spoke the same language and they all had the same culture, but they were not united and they wouldn't fight each other, but they, were, they weren't enemies, and, but they weren't friendly towards each other. They were just waiting for someone, if someone would come along and unite them. So in 1821, on the banks of Blue Water Creek in what is now the stubby little panhandle of Nebraska, two nights before, a meteor had shot through the sky, left a giant, a red swath of cloud across the sky. And in 1821, by the banks of Blue Water Creek, a baby was born and his father named him Red Cloud. And Red Cloud was the man who would eventually unite these people. Tom will tell you about that. Um, as Bob just said, Red Cloud was born in May of 1821, and uh, he. There's so many stories that we've heard of in history of of people, uh, men and women who had to have very difficult childhoods and had to rise above them, and the resiliency and the strength that they gained from their experiences made them into leaders, uh, made them tougher than some of their rivals, and that was certainly Red Cloud's situation. He was born in 1821. He, uh, his mother was called Walks as She Thinks. He had a younger brother, a little spider, eventually. When Red Cloud was only five years old, his father died. And his father didn't die of you know, a war or an accident or anything. He died of alcoholism. So we're talking about the mid-1820s. And here's a, a Sioux man dying of alcoholism. And when the, the traders, some of the explorers, but the traders, some of the early migrants, the people who were working their way west, uh, there were three powerful diseases they brought with them, smallpox, cholera, and alcohol. And the Indians did not have any immunity to any of these diseases. They were felled by the hundreds. And uh, Red Cloud thus had to grow up without a father. A advantage he had is that his mother went back to her Oglala band uh, that was run by the headman there was a man named Old Smoke who she called brother. Now, we don't know, were they biologically brothers or was that just the relationship that they had, a brother and sister relationship? But in any case, uh, Old Smoke took in this woman and her two young, you know, fatherless children. Red Cloud was not given anything. You know, he didn't have a father who was gonna bring him up the ladder, so to speak, like Crazy Horse had, like Sitting Bull would have. So he had to earn everything. He had to become the best rider. He had to become the best hunter. Uh, eventually, he had to become the best warrior. And over time, even when he was a teenager, you know, there's a, there's a section in the book where we talk about he went into his first battle when he was 16 years old. And there was great uh, uh, excitement in the village as this war party was being put together because for the first time, Red Cloud was putting on the war paint and getting ready for battle. And, you know, the people in the village were saying, Red Cloud comes, Red Cloud comes, as he made his way on his horse to join this war party. So at a very early age, he, he showed qualities and talents that uh, were superior to most of the people in his tribe. In the 1830s, 1840s, he became, he rose up the ranks. He became a leader. He became a great warrior. And uh, being a warrior was, a great warrior was very important because uh, we sort of likened it to what was going on in the Great Plains at the time was sort of like gang warfare. You know, the, the tribes, the Sioux, the Arapaho, the Cheyenne, the Pawnee, the Crow, they were almost always at war with each other. 
and it wasn't just a war like, okay, we want, we, we want to defeat you and conquer you. It was, uh, well, we want this hunting ground. Okay, we know it belongs to you, but not for long. Look out, here we come. And so there was constant fighting to steal horses, to steal lands. Obviously, if you had the best hunting ground, your tribe had a better chance of survival because there were going to be more buffalo, there were going to be more elk, there were going to be more antelope. And uh, one of the things that Red, Red Cloud, he displayed not only great courage and great strength, he demonstrated great intelligence and empathy. When he came back from a successful hunting raid, for example, he didn't just keep everything for himself. He made sure that the elders got some of what he brought back. He made sure that some families that had not, were not, were struggling to take care of themselves uh, got some of his bounty that he brought back. Uh, he made sure the, the, the people who were in power in the tribe, Old Smoke and the, and the, and the other elders, that they were taken care of. And in, in this way, he also started to gain a kind of respect that he might not otherwise have gotten being a fatherless uh, person. So in, into the 1850s, uh, he began to be viewed by the Oglalas as uh, not chief. And I think that's important. It's one of the more interesting things that we found out. There was no chief. You know, we're, we're used to somebody who is an authority in Native, Native American circles being a chief. But that was actually a white man invention. Red Cloud was not a chief, but he became uh, like the, 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 the most powerful warrior and the head of their warrior society. And he, he was observing what was going on. He, even though the tribes spent most of their time fighting each other, they couldn't help noticing that there were more and more white people showing up. Uh, fort Laramie was probably the most prominent fort uh, in that part, you know, on Missouri, west of the Missouri. And it would be a way station as people coming from the east would stop at Fort, fort Laramie. They would pick up more people, drop off some people, get supplies, drop off supplies, change horses or whatever. And then they would go on. That's what the Oregon Trail was about. They would be going on to Oregon or they would be going up to other, other places. Uh, certainly when gold was discovered in California, the emigration accelerated across to the west going through. And uh, the Red Cloud could see that the uh, increase in population of people coming across the territory uh, was doing several things. And you're listening to Bob Drury and Tom Clavin telling the story of Red Cloud and that mention of white people, the original white guys, poking around in this neck of the woods after the Louisiana Purchase was, of course, Lewis and Clark. And we tell their story while Clay Jenkinson tells their story in our multi-part series, approaching 40 parts, the most epic road trip ever, the story of Lewis and Clark, and go to ouramericanstories.com and plug it in, download it if you're taking a long family trip. Nobody tells the story of Lewis and Clark better than Clay, and Clay Jenkinson uh, is on the History Channel. You see him all the time, as do you see Bob and Tom. More of this remarkable story from their New York Times bestseller, The Heart of Everything That Is, The Untold Story of Red Cloud, an American legend. Let's return to the story. Red Cloud could see that the uh, increase in population of people coming across the territory uh, was doing several things. One was they were taking a big share of the buffalo. He also, Red Cloud, anticipated that they were going to 
want to go through or perhaps even occupy the Black Hills. And for those who wonder and don't know the title of, of our book, The Heart of Everything That Is, the Sioux name for the Black Hills was Pahasapa. And to them, uh, translated is the heart of everything that is. The Black Hills was the heart of their existence. That's where uh, they believe their ancestors came from. And it was sacred land to them. And it certainly could not be given away. It could not certainly just simply be occupied. It could not be taken advantage of by the, the white explorers and settlers and the army, certainly. But he, he saw that coming. He saw this clash. You know, Bob mentioned the word empire before. You know, there was this growing empire of the East, and there was this empire that Red Cloud was basically had become the head of because he was this intelligent, charismatic man. And other Indians, even other tribes, respected him. Some feared him, but they respected him. And he could see that they were going to clash against each other. Something interrupted what he saw, and that was the Civil War. When the Civil War broke out in 1861, Obviously, you couldn't have the kind of forts and army presence in the West that you had because as many, everybody was needed back East. And it was kind of a respite uh, there, and it lasted 1861 to 1865. And when the Civil War ended, suddenly there was a big change because this, this sense of manifest destiny could go right back into full swing. And the enormous increase of people started making their way West again, and the whole coveting of the Great Plains and the Black Hills began all over again. So now I'll turn it back over to Bob. Yeah. And during the Civil War II, gold was being discovered all over the West. Montana, Idaho, the Front Range in Colorado. And so the miners started pouring in. In Red Cloud's lifetime, I think there were four treaties that were broken. The whites just kept coming, say, okay, we're going to stop here. We'll sign the treaty. We'll touch the pen. Gold would be discovered somewhere and said, oh, well, no, that treaty didn't count. Here's the new one. And Red Cloud was like, he didn't trust the whites as far as he could throw them. But with all this gold being discovered all over the West, he knew it was inevitable that he was going to have to fight them. So he started attacking the miners. And he started attacking the wagon trains on the Oregon Trail. On the, and in cooperation with, during this hiatus that Tom talked about, he had become such a great name in the plains that even though he was no Glala, warriors from other Sioux bands wanted to ride with him. Hunk Papas would ride in with him and say, we want to ride with you, hunt with you, fight with you. Brules would come in. Sands Arcs would come in. And so he had developed kind of this intertribal facility that now he was going to use and turn it on the whites. And what he had done that no Indian had ever done before, he had also co-opted other tribes, the Cheyenne, the Arapaho, some Shoshone, these tribes would fight with the Sioux. This had never happened before. Washington, the officials back east in the, the, the War Department, they had never, they had fought uh, Seminoles in Florida, they had fought Mohawks, they had fought Cherokee, but they had never fought multiple tribes at once. And so Red Cloud's war was a guerrilla war. And he would attack and pick off a wagon train here, a supply train there, a mail train here. So the miners, of course, and the settlers who were passing through appealed to Washington, who started to send soldiers west. Civil War was over. We're going to send our soldiers, our battle-hardened soldiers, to, to pick off these, with these savages, these prehistoric savages. We'll mop them up. It's not going to take long. And Red Cloud was winning these skirmishes. And the more soldiers that came out, the more Indians were attracted to his warrior fiefdom, so to speak. And he would. And, he was baffling. 
the, the U.S. officers, the Army officers, they, they couldn't figure out. Here was a man, Indians, American Indians before, had never, Red Cloud would set up three different attacks on a fort here, on a supply train 200 miles away, and then on a wagon train 300 miles away from that. This had never happened before. And he would attack, and instead of celebrating, as was the American Indian custom and habit, he would attack the next day and the day after that. And then his warriors would just disappear into the plains. It was true guerrilla warfare, and we didn't know how to handle it. So we sent out more and more soldiers, and more and more soldiers, and the soldiers were just, they were not used to, they had seen some hard, some hard fighting in the Civil War, but they weren't used to coming across a supply train where everyone's penis had been hacked off, eyeballs gouged out, brains gouged out. We think we found, or actually I should credit Tom with this, Tom found a journal, and it might be the first time U.S. soldiers making a pact to kill each other rather than be captured by the Indians. I mean, this is how foreign this kind of warfare was to them. So finally, General Grant and General Sherman said enough is enough. We're gonna send out, we're gonna send out an army to fight Red Cloud. But Red Cloud wasn't going to fight their army on the European terms or on the Civil War terms that they wanted. So they sent out thousands of mounted infantry. From the movies, we all think it's cavalry, John Wayne's cavalry. It was, it was all mounted infantry. Who These guys were kind of learning how to ride on the fly. And that was another advantage the Sioux had. So in the summer of 1865 alone, 3,000 soldiers combed, combed the West looking for Red Cloud. And he would attack them, and they could never find him. And then in 1866, this hard-charging captain, Captain Fetterman, Sherman's hand-picked man, go find me Red Cloud, kill him, and kill every Sioux male over the age of 12. Well, Fetterman gets out there, and he's of the opinion, you know, these are Indians. These are savages, prehistoric. I could, I could ride through the entire Sioux nation with 80 men, and he tried to do that. He took out 81 men one day, and Red Cloud laid a trap for him, and Fetterman rode right into it, and everyone, Fetterman included, in his command were killed. Now, the Americans called it a massacre. The Sioux, the Sioux called it a fight. It was a fair fight. We beat these guys. We killed them. But that was the beginning of what came to be known as Red Cloud's War. Now, Red Cloud's War would go on for another two years, and there were many, many more Fettermans sent out to capture Red Cloud. And there were many, many more American soldiers who were killed while Red Cloud still remained uncaptured and undead. So finally, after two years, we needed the gold. I mean, we were living, the United States had built up such a national debt during the Civil War. We said, we'll do any. Red Cloud, come in. What do you want? We'll, we'll have another treaty. We promise we'll keep this treaty. We know we've broken a dozen before. We promise we'll keep this one. Just tell us what you want. And Red Cloud had one demand, and it was a pretty big demand. And he gave it to Washington representatives, and they were like, huh. And so would Washington meet Red Cloud's demand, or would they not? This was the key to Red Cloud's war. The, the treaty that Red Cloud signed in 1868 to end the war was still in effect. Uh, when gold was discovered in the Black Hills, uh, uh, miners were prospectors were flood, trying to flood into the Black Hills. For a while, the U.S. government made some attempt to keep them out, but they realized, you know, we're not going to be able to do that. So they appointed, uh, got an expedition together that was headed by George Armstrong Custer, who went in there, and uh, the, 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 there was no battle, there was no resistance, no opposition put up to Custer going in there. 
but what was happening is his invasion, so to speak, of the Black Hills did build momentum uh, under the leadership of Sitting Bull and Crazy Horse uh, that they have to they have to stop this. They have they have to protect the Black Hills. Two years later, the result was Little Bighorn and the, the, the deaths of Custer and, and his command at the hands of Sitting Bull and Crazy Horse, which was a battle that Red Cloud did not participate in. Red Cloud had already been to Washington. Yeah. And he had seen, the fir very first place they took him when he got to this town was to the Navy Yard and showed him the cannons. So when the uh, whites started pouring into the Black Hills, Sitting Bull and Crazy Horse said, okay, it's time to fight him again. And uh, Red Cloud had kind of honed Crazy Horse. He had picked him out as a teenager and made him his field commander at the mm. age of 22 or something. So Crazy Horse and Sitting Bull came back to Red Cloud and said, we've got to do it again. They're coming again. They broke another treaty. By this time, Red Cloud had been to Washington twice, I believe, and to New York. He knew what was on the other side of the Mississippi River. And he said to Sitting Bull and, and Crazy Horse, he said, no, we can't beat these people. I'm not going to waste my people. I'm not going to sacrifice my people's lives. We can't beat these people, which is why Red Cloud never got involved in the Custer fight. Although Sitting Bull and Crazy Horse basically followed the blueprint that Red Cloud had devised, you know, 10 years earlier in his war against the white, white people. And great job, as always, to Greg Hengler for finding the story and editing it and getting it to us. And a special thanks to Bob Drury and to Tom Clavin. And my goodness, what a read, what a book, what a story. The heart of everything that is the untold story of Red Cloud an American legend, go to Amazon or the usual suspects. Buy the book. You won't put it down. After signing the Treaty of Fort Laramie in 1868, Red Cloud led his people in the transition to reservation life. In 1884, he and his family, along with five Indian leaders, converted and were baptized as Catholics by Father Joseph Bushman. Outliving all other major Lakota leaders of the Indian Wars, Red Cloud died on Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota, in 1909 at the age of 87 and was buried there in the cemetery now bearing his name and by the way red cloud saw the collision of cultures there was nothing he could do about it the original tragedy to this country the story that we tell because we tell all the stories good and bad about this great not perfect country but great country here on our american stories Habib and this is Our American Stories and we tell stories about everything here on this show from the arts to sports and from business to history and everything in between including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org They're some of our favorites and we love telling immigrant stories here on this show. We've told so many there are too many to mention and one of our favorites was Horst Schultz's story and he's the co-founder of the Ritz-Carlton and author of Excellence Wins a no-nonsense guide to becoming the best in a world of compromise. And we were so blown away by the story and got such great feedback 
that we all wanted to hear more from Horst because he had so much wisdom to confer through his storytelling. And without further ado, here's Horst talking about how to live a life and giving advice in the end to so many of us who have kids and so many of us who are just stumbling through our own lives. Take it away, Horst. The key I try to give young people, I try to give my children and so on, you define yourself. If you, you know, you know, forgive me, anybody who, who does it, but let me tell you, if you, as a young man, spike your hair, a color green, and, and, and look like a bum, you're defining yourself as a bum, period. And, you know, forgive me, but that's a fact. You define yourself, and, and, and it's up to you what you define. You know, I'm not, not telling you what you have to do, but understand, you define yourself every moment. I tell the story about the bank there in, in the book. It, 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 this was a traumatic moment. If you really think about it, and it's a true story, by the way, I lived in Chicago, and I knew the bank very well. They advertised. I've never been in a bank. But in the meantime, I was, have started here in Atlanta, and I was invited by them, by that bank, to talk to the 300 manager, and I'll forget it, about customer service, customer satisfaction, service. Got it the day before. Again, I knew them well. They advertised service all the time. But the day before, I thought, gee, I've never been in that bank. Tomorrow, somebody is bound to say, have you been in our bank? And I better be able to say yes. So I went to that bank. Now, walking into this, outside the building already, magnificent, stately, and, and you walk in, I mean, marble floor, marble pillars. You can feel the money all around you. It is very impressive, very... Wow, and all the way over there, a long counter to tell us, and in front of the maze. So I walk into the maze. Now, what is service? We have to establish here what is service. It starts with welcome, complying to the wishes, and farewell. That's service. Welcome, comply, farewell. What's the expectation of the customer when they come by anything? We must understand that. You or I or anybody has the same subconscious expectation, no matter what you buy. If it is legal service or a bottle of water or a car or radio, you have the same subconscious expectations. You want no defect. You want your product to be right. You want timeliness. You don't want to wait for your bottle of water. You want when you want it. And you want the people who give it to you to be nice to you. Those are the three things that are, so if, if, if I know as a business, this is what people expect from me, I build processes to deliver it. So I'm in, in, the, in the maze, not long, I'm timeliness now. I'm number one, I look left and somebody on the right screams, next! That was the first step of service. I come to her teller, was a woman, by the way, men are usually worse in service, was a lady. I, she, when, as I reached her teller, she looks down, finishes some transaction for one second or two. I see her face. I don't know her. She, she doesn't know me. But when she looked up, it was very clear that she hated me. And she said, yes. Yes. I said, just want to change $50. She actually sighed. And she said, 10, 20, 45, 50, next. 
and I look at my product, my change is a product, no defect. The timeliness was good, but the individual service was non-existent. What could she have done? She could have said, the next gentleman, please. Come to tell her, welcome, sir, how may I help you? Just want to change $50. That's my pleasure. 10, 12, 45, 50. Have a wonderful day. Bang. What happened to me? I was dissatisfied. I was a terrorist. The number two treatment, I would have been satisfied. It was fine. It wouldn't have cost her more. It wouldn't have done any harm. It would, it would have been so easy. Or there could have been a third way of serving me. She could have said, the next gentleman, please. When I come to a teller, ideally, she would have called me, welcome, Mr. Schulze. No, in this case, she wouldn't know my name. I understand that. But that is the ideal service, personalized. Welcome, Mr. Schulze. How may I help you? Just want to change $50. Ideally, she would have said 10, 20, 45. And here are four coins, five coins. Because I know you collect coins, individualized to me. Now that is great service. Then I would have moved immediately to a level of trust and loyalty. But what should she do? She did the first thing that I explained. She said, next. And she treated me as if she was angry that I was there. So what did I do? For the next 15 years, I used them for an example as, as lousy service. What happened here? She defined the bank. She defined her fellow workers. That can't happen. You can't let that happen in an organization. That one employee defines you. And, and, and I didn't say Susie mistreated me. I said that bank is a poor bank. So well said. And this goes for everything, whether you're representing your family, your company, your country. It matters how you present yourself. And it takes such a little bit more effort. But it's so different. It differentiates you from everyone else when you go that extra. Forget yard. I think what Horst is saying is go the extra mile. Heck, you're there anyway. Next. I also hate no problem. I ask somebody for something and they say, no problem. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't know it was a problem. Um, Never a thank you. Rarely eye contact. It's just remarkable. And that's spending $6 on a coffee for my little girl. No problem. Horst Schultz, his story, so many stories this man has. And his book, Excellence Wins, A No-Nonsense Guide to Becoming the Best in a world of compromise. These stories here on Our American Story. And we continue here with Our American Stories, and we love bringing you stories of family businesses. Today, we bring you the story of a company who recently celebrated their 190th anniversary with four members of the sixth generation in leadership roles. And it just happens to be America's oldest brewery, Yingling. Here's Jennifer Yingling. 
Jennifer Yingling. I'm a sixth generation family member of America's Oldest Brewery. I have three sisters and the four of us comprise the sixth generation of, of Yinglings. So our dad, Richard Yingling, fifth generation current owner and president, has essentially been at the helm now for well, over 30 years, since 1985. We were founded in 1829 by my great-great-great-grandfather. Uh, he emigrated from Germany, came over here, and we've learned that he was the youngest of his siblings, and his father was a brewer in Germany. David G. Yingling realized that he would not have an opportunity to own and run the family business over there, so he decided to come to America and settled here in Pottsville, Pennsylvania. At the time, anthracite coal was becoming quite popular, so we're lots of thirsty coal miners coming home from work every day. So he, uh, he built his brewery in downtown Pottsville. It was actually down on Center Street, where our city hall now stands, so that built that in 1829, was destroyed by a fire. So in 1831, he relocated over to the present site where we are now at 5th and Mockantonga Streets. We refer to that as our historic brewery built into the side of a mountain. So there was no electricity, no refrigeration by those means in those days. So he dug tunnels into the side of that mountain to use the natural refrigeration of the earth to age and lager the beers. Also, um, there, there was a spring, a well, not far from that location. So he used all of the spring water for his, his brewing needs. So you had David Yingling, and then he had, he had a couple sons. His one son, D.G. Jr., he branched off on his own and started a brewery in Richmond, Virginia called the James River Steam Brewery. I don't know that David was all that successful because it only lasted a few years. So it transitioned then um, set to second generation. Third generation was Frank Yingling, who was my great-grandfather, and he probably was at the helm longer, I'm going to say 60-some years, longer than any other owner. Went through a lot of different trials and tribulations, and probably the biggest one being Prohibition and that was an act in 1918. He really was a true entrepreneur, learned how to diversify, did a few real estate type ventures, made near beer, and that was one half of 1% alcohol, and that was, that was legal in those days. So produced near beer to keep many of his workers still employed, 13 years of, of not being able to make real beer. Then the biggest, I think, innovation, diversification that he did overall was uh, he built a dairy, which is across the street from the brewery. Um, where he made ice cream and milk products. As Prohibition came to an end, um, he had a batch of what he called winter beer, as though the breweries had won their fight against Prohibition, had that ready um, the day Prohibition was, was repealed and had it delivered to FDR's uh, doorstep the next day. <laughs> Fourth, you get into my grandfather and his brother. They were some really lean years. Um, you know, you're getting into kind of the 60s and the 70s there, and it was the rise of the mega brewers, if you will. You had your Budweiser, your Miller, your Coors. Interstate transportation became um, much more widely used in St. Louis, Missouri. Anheuser-Busch could make their beer, and they could get it across the country much more quickly than they had in the past. Advertising and merchandising budgets, uh, marketing budgets, became much more popular, too. So um, a lot of the local Brewers, regional brewers, started to either go out of business, families didn't want to run them anymore, or they simply got bought out by these, by these bigger brewers. And, you know, I, you give that fourth generation of my grandfather and his brother Dorman a lot of credit for just hanging in there through those, those lean years because there wasn't a lot of extra resources and capital to, to invest, but um, they were able to get by. We had a lot of local support from our community. Um, they supported our brands, and we just, we just, like my dad likes to say, we hung in there. My grandfather became ill in the mid-80s, at which time my dad had 
broken off from the brewery and he had his own distributorship. So he had a local wholesaler here in town. So he still maintained ties locally. He had just distanced himself from the plant. So when, when his father became ill, um, he came back into the business, took it over, and that's when we really started to see our huge growth trajectory uh, take aim. A couple initiatives that he did were he invested. He had the, Once he had the ability to invest, he invested in machinery, increased our production efficiencies, um, and he came out with some good brands, like our, our, our traditional lager brand, which is our flagship today, um, black and tan. And, um, and then he came out with a light beer. So some great innovation there too in my dad's early years that put us on the map and enabled us to, to broaden our reach and expand our footprint. I'd like to talk about the founder being an entrepreneur because obviously he founded his own business. And I almost think Frank, the third generation, was very entrepreneurial in being able to diversify the way he did. And I think my dad has a lot of those same characteristics. So he had a vision of, number one, this lager brand that he wanted to get into consumers' hands, a beer that had more taste, more character than what most consumers were used to seeing at that time. And, you know, I think my dad, along with Jim Cook, the owner of Samuel Adams, Boston, Boston Brewery, essentially pioneers in the craft brewery movement. They, you know, they were the first ones to come out with this beer that looked a little different. It wasn't yellow, it wasn't have that, that fizz to it. Um, it was an amber-colored beer with a little more flavor to it. So he had a vision, number one, he was an entrepreneur, and, um, and I think he had a lot of confidence in knowing what he wanted to do and, and very independently thinking too but able to surround himself with people, whether it was in the marketing department, the sales department, to get where he wanted to go. I think he saw that, you know, that the standard yellow pilsners, they weren't gaining volume and realized that you can educate consumers to different styles and different beers that are out there that, that have a different flavor profile to them. And he really, he hit, he hit it on the mark with our lager brand. It's about between 70 and 80% of our sales today. So he grew the business. We had our original historic Pottsville Brewery, which he got it to the point where it was maxed out on capacity. So by the late 90s, we were maxed out over there. We were making more beer than the brewery was able to sustain. That's when my sisters and I started to play a role because his thinking was, I need to invest here. I need to invest in this company if I want to continue to grow, but I don't want to do that unless I know the next generation is, is interested. But once he recognized that we had that commitment and we were, you know, we were interested in coming into the business, then he made the decision to build this brewery that we're, we're sitting in right now. So we call this our new brewery, even though it is almost 20 years old, and this has been here since, since 2000. At the same time, though, you don't build a brewery in a day. It, it takes a couple years. So we still had to, we still had to get beer into, into our wholesalers' warehouses because we just could not make enough over in Pottsville. So the timing was, was, was appropriate. He happened to be in Tampa, Florida, and um, the last Stroh brewery in the country was, was up for sale. So lots of different things, you know, all, all coming together really well there. The timing, the size of the brewery was good for us. So we bought that Stroh plant, did some trial brews, got a flavor match, and then all that initial beer came up into our northern markets to satisfy our, our wholesalers' needs until we were able to start pumping beer out of here. So at that point in time, once we had beer coming out of here, could start opening markets, New York, Maryland, Virginia, and then the beer from Tampa, we started opening up our southern markets, North, South Carolina, Florida, and then we've expanded as far west as like Mississippi, Tennessee, and we're in, currently in 22 states. 
It's amazing having his, and I would say it's close to 60 years of industry experience. So I think every day it's picking his brain, understanding why he thinks the way he does, because he was around and he remembers those lean days. So he's not quick to make changes or decisions um, because he's, we're in this for the long term. You know, we, we've been here for 190 years. You know, we, we, we say we want to be here for the next 190 years. And I don't think our ancestors would have allowed us to be here this long if they made too many knee-jerk decisions. So he's, he's, very, he's very meticulous about his thinking, and I think that's one of the things that we've, we've all learned from him. Don't, don't jump into something or, or jump on a trend or a fad just because everybody else is, because some of those guys might not be here tomorrow. Our goal is to be here for the next several generations. And you've been listening to Jennifer Yingling and the voice of the sixth generation of Yinglings survived some really lean years in the 60s and 70s when companies like Coors and Budweiser, the mass retailers, were at it. But in the end, really, they were the pioneers in this area, along with the Samuel Adams folks. And my goodness, exploding now today. Sort of reminds me of the Steinway story we did. Go to ouramericannetwork.org to hear that Steinway story, because my goodness, another great American business that has survived, well, many generations. When we return, we're going to continue with the story of this sixth generation family business and with Jennifer Yingling here on Our American Story. Today, more people are finding what their soul needs to keep going. People want genuineness. And this is what I think Our American Stories is. It is genuine. It's pure. You're learning life lessons, but it's the way we teach it through these airwaves that make people want to tune in. There's no I in this. It is a we thing. This word needs to be out there. This is Our American Stories, and now a story from our own Monty Montgomery about one woman's transformative journey. Christina Dent grew up in the capital of Mississippi. I grew up in West Jackson uh, in a wonderful, happy home. I grew up in a Christian home and just had a really happy childhood. My mom homeschooled me and my brothers all the way through high school, and I grew up in a community that had a lot of crime in it. I would lay in bed at night and hear ambulances and gunshots as the two sounds I remember hearing. I went through a lot of anxiety as a child. Because of that, our neighbors were held up at gunpoint while we were home, and our neighbors didn't have a phone, and so they came over right after it had happened to use our phone to call the police. And that happened when I was about eight or nine. And that set off for me a a lot of even deeper anxiety than I kind of already had. And that was uh, hard. I begged my parents to move out of state. I thought maybe if we went somewhere else, I would feel safer. I thought that was just how it was. And there wasn't really anything we could do to change that. 
I grew up always thinking tough on crime was the way to go. So I, I got there by saying there's crime in my community and I don't like that. So we need to be tougher on crime to make that crime go away. And I associated anything related to drugs in with that, just be tougher. If we can just get tougher, if we can just lock more people up, then I wouldn't hear these gunshots. I wouldn't hear these you know, police sirens. That was my framework and I never really knew much about it. I wasn't politically involved. I was always voting. Felt like that was really important to do, but never really understood what was happening or what maybe could be different for me and for kids like me. After getting married, Christina and her husband had two children of their own before deciding that they wanted to start adopting. And they nearly did taking their chances on two toddlers. But while that door closed, another one would open. I had never been interested in foster care, even in my interest with adoption, I wanted nothing to do with foster care. But now that door had kind of been opened and we had to consider, you know, if we were willing to take those two kids in, why couldn't we be willing to take another kid or two from somewhere else in? And so we ended up deciding we were going to foster through the state and we would just kind of see where that went. Maybe it would end with the children going back home. Maybe it would end in adoption. We were open to either possibility and just thought that would kind of be a temporary thing that we would participate in. And so we went through about a year of getting certified and then we got a call out of the blue from our licensure worker. And she said, congratulations, Mrs. Dent. You guys are licensed to be a foster family. And I said, oh, this is great, thank you. And she followed that right up with, we have a baby that we need a foster family for, and can we bring him over now? And we were completely unprepared for that because we had been slogging through the licensure process for so long, we thought it would be months before we still were even approved to foster, much less actually had a, a child come into our home. We went home and we got everything ready and we're texting our family and saying, there's this baby coming this afternoon. And they brought this little boy over to our house and we became his foster family and that was the beginning of four and a half years of foster care for us. My husband got a call about 18 months after we had taken that first baby and he called me and said they have another baby they need a foster family for and I really feel like this time we need to say yes. I just feel like God has this child for our home. And I said, oh, I don't know, this feels really overwhelming. I already feel overwhelmed. I homeschooled my children and I just thought, I don't know that I can do this again with an 18 month old with two older kids with homeschooling and a new baby. This would be crazy. But I thought, you know, my husband really feels strongly about this and it's never going to seem like the best time to have another child in your home. So. Okay, we'll do it. And they brought this new little baby over. He had just been released from the hospital after his birth. He was born premature, and so he was tiny. He was just uh, about five and a half pounds. He was also the son of a mother who used drugs during her pregnancy. And the social worker brought him to our house, and she said, oh, it was so sad. When I left the hospital with him, it was like a funeral. His mom was there, the NICU nurses were all there with her, everyone was crying. And I felt this shift of something inside of me, this feeling of, wait a second, that's not right. 
because a mom who would use drugs while she was pregnant couldn't love her kids. How, how, does, how does that work? So here you're telling me this child was removed from her custody because she used drugs prenatally, but she's also crying as he's taken away from her at the hospital. That does not fit what I think about moms who would use drugs while they were pregnant. But through that experience, I met the mom of one of our foster sons. And her name was Joanne. He was at her house for a couple of weeks, and then we had his first visit with her. So I hadn't met her at this point, but we had the first visit with her at the local child welfare office in Canton. And so I had drove up there with our other children and our new little foster son, and I popped his car seat out of my van, and I turned around in the parking lot, and across the parking lot is sprinting this woman with tears streaming down her face, and she runs up to me and she just starts kissing the baby, who I'm just kind of standing there awkwardly holding his car seat. And she's talking to him and I felt this shift again of what is going on here because this isn't what I thought was real. Now, I admittedly knew nothing about addiction. It had never come close to me and so I only had what I kind of picked up from our cultural narrative about addiction, which is bad people use drugs, bad people become addicted to them, and we should be suspicious. And so that's what I thought. And I did feel very suspicious. I thought maybe, maybe she's just putting this on. Maybe she just wants to make me think she's a great mom and loves her son so that somehow I'll put a good word in with the social worker and that's gonna you know, make things better for her. And so she got to spend her one hour of allotted visitation time with her son in the little side meeting area with one couch and a couple toys in it. And I went to the local park and played with my kids to give her some privacy while she was with her son for that time. And then I came back and picked him up and we went back to our house and Joanne left for inpatient drug treatment a couple hours away in North Mississippi. But she would call me from treatment. She would call about once a day. They would you know, allow her to make a phone call. And she would call me and she would say, can you put me on speakerphone? And I would, and she would sing to her son over the phone. And again, this growing sense of something is not right because what I'm seeing here is a mother who loves her son deeply and is also struggling with a complex, serious health crisis. But what I believe is that moms like her don't love their children. And I could start to follow those dots and say, that belief is part of what I have to believe to support moms like her being put in prison, which I know is happening every day. Not just moms, but moms, dads, sons, daughters, brothers, sisters. There are people using drugs and struggling with addiction that we're arresting every day, and I knew that. And so the more that I got to know Joanne, the more I saw her love is real. Her love for her son is real. When she asks me to let him sleep with a particular little animal blankie because she wants him to still be able to smell, to smell her, and she had had that with him in the hospital, that's real. She cares for him. She loves him. She wants him to remember his mom. She's working hard so that she can regain custody of him and parent him and raise him. I could see as I looked at what would this do to Joanne and to her son? What would it do if we put her in prison for 10 years while her son grew up without a mom, if he lost the ability to have a future relationship with his mom? 
With Joanne in treatment, we had the potential for a positive outcome. And we know that not everyone who goes to treatment is able to stay sober. Not everyone who goes to treatment and is sober is necessarily able to parent. But I could see that the only way that that could happen for Joanne and for her family is if she wasn't in prison. In prison, there's no opportunity for a positive outcome there. It is a nuclear option on a family. We grew up in the 80s together. We're almost exactly the same age. We're both white women in our 30s in middle-class families. We both were homeschooled, kindergarten through high school. We made some different choices, and those choices led to different outcomes. But I could see more and more as I got to know Joanne that really those choices were choices I could have also made. And they, I, my life could have had very different outcomes. And it wasn't a difference in fundamentally who I am and who Joanne is that is the difference in where we are now. We're the same kind of person. And I saw Joanne as a mom like me. And you've been listening to Christina Dent and her beautiful story. By the way, we love telling adoption stories because, my goodness, that kind of unconditional love, the world needs a lot more of it. If you have an adoption story, send them our way. They're some of our favorites. We actually spend a month during National Adoption Month digging in. The world needs more like it. I just thought that's the way it was. She talked about her early childhood in a tough neighborhood, hearing shots and her tough-on-crime mentality being forged, and then meeting Joanne and it changing her life. And by the way, I love that the husband said, it's never going to seem like the best time to have another child in your home. And but for that call, she would have never met Joanne. Her life and her thoughts about such people would have never changed. Christina Dent's story, a beautiful one, a Mississippi story too, here on Our American Stories.